0: Good, so good to see you here this morning, so delighted you're here to worship on this last Sunday of 2019, and uh, what better way to end it than strongly in this way, in this sense, to gather together to worship Jesus and to listen to his word, and I pray that this morning we have uh, created spaces in our heart and us corporately to hear from his spirit. Um, Lots coming up over the next few weeks. Uh, Next Sunday, I'm going to be kicking off our series, Vision 2020, Deepen to Broaden, I'm going to preach to you a message on number one priority uh, of our four priorities for 2020. And, um, you know, if you um, have a a, a a sense or an inclination, maybe a hunger or desire that you want 2020 to be your best year, 2020 can be your best year if it's your best year spiritually. That you actually become mature in Jesus or grow in maturity in Jesus that you actually become obedient to Jesus and His call in your life, and that you become fruitful, bearing good fruit, right? Living a life worthy of His gospel. And my job as a pastor is to help equip you to do that. So I spend all of my time thinking through, studying through, how do I equip God's people for the work of ministry. And um, we have this uh, brand new merch, brand new merchandise out in the lobby, by the way. Uh, Dwelling Place Church. Uh, you'll see Vision 2020, Deep into Broaden. And on the back, uh, you'll see Vision 2020, Deep into Broaden, Dwelling Place Church. Uh, and then it says Woodstock, Georgia. So these are $20. Uh, you can buy one out in the lobby today. Uh, if you buy them all, uh, then... Hey, more power to us, I'll order more shirts, all right? So $20, you can, you can uh, use the back of an envelope if you want to use a credit card. You can write a check. You can pay cash as well. And Henry will be out there at the, uh, at the table concluding the gathering. Well, listen, if you didn't receive a white little card on your way in, would you just raise your hand right quick? One of our ushers would love to put that in your hand. There's a pen there in the seat back in front of you. And you say, Pastor Craig, there are no notes on this card. Well, you can imagine how much study... And work has to go into preaching uh, two messages in the same week, and to get two cards and a Spanish translation of that same card translated in the same week. For those of you who are with us on Christmas Eve, uh, that is not to say that uh, we just came up with this message yesterday. Okay, I think you all know me well enough by now, uh, but nonetheless, I want you to be able to write down some things. And hey, if you got a smartphone, uh, the entire message is right there on your phone. All you got to do is hit U version. And when you do, events will pop up and you'll see Dwelling Place Church as your closest location and follow along with us there uh, as well. I want to preach to you a message that I'm entitling today, 2020, the year of living biblically. I did not say 2020, the year of knowing Scripture. 2020, the year of reading and just digesting Scripture. The year of living, not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. The year... Of living biblically, a handful of times I think since we've planted the church, I've told you about a book that I looked at years ago. The book is called "The Year of Living Living Biblically." The author, they got a picture of it, is A.J. Jacob. A.J. Jacob, by the way, is not even a Christian. It's interesting; he's not even a Christian, and he wrote this book. He describes himself as a Jewish agnostic. In fact, if this helps at all, this is his words. He said, I'm officially Jewish, but only Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. Okay? So if that helps you, and he's beating up on my Olive Garden, I love, right? I mean, soup and salad unlimited, can it get any better, right? Maybe it can. All right. Well, for an entire year, this dude who is not a believer, not a believer, he's a Jewish agnostic, for a year, he attempts to follow every rule of the Bible, as literal as possible, okay? He tries to take every rule. You say, how does he do it? He begins by reading the Bible cover to cover. He reads Genesis through Revelation. He writes down every single directive he could find, any command in the scripture, and then he tried to live them out for a year, might I add, while living in Manhattan. The year of living biblically. He stopped wearing all clothes that were made of any mixed fibers. Again, took every Levitical law In accordance with Levitical law, he stopped having the edges of his beard shaved. So he ends up at the end of this year with this massive beard that makes him look like the lead singer for ZZ Top. Or one of the Duck Dynasty characters, if you don't like good music. He tries to do this literally. He refuses to shake hands with any woman he thinks might be ceremonially unclean. Now you can imagine how awkward that is. Because he's walking down the street trying to determine which one would be ceremonially unclean. He shakes no hands with any woman. And this is one of my favorites. He tries to fling tiny little pebbles at people without noticing them or in the, the restaurant in order to fulfill the command that you must stone adulterers. So he takes little pebbles and starts flicking them at people that he knows has committed adultery. Now he did this for a whole year. An entire year. He said it made for a great book, but he almost destroyed his marriage. Okay, His wife couldn't handle it anymore. About month six, she was done. She said, excuse me, if you don't cut it out, I'm going to leave you. You say, Craig, why in the world would you kick off this message that way? I don't know, but I kind of find it a little bit of a morbid amusement with this because I think it encapsulates how the majority of American Christians approach the Bible. I think the majority of people, when they look at the context of Scripture, or I could say what keeps the majority of Christians from approaching the Bible, is that they see the Bible this way. They're just kind of not sure how to really take it. It seems to be intimidating. And even if you believe the Bible, maybe you feel like, Uh, about the bible like you do about the software license agreement on your apple iphone okay and you know you have never read all of that when you attempt to download a new app you have never you scrolled as fast as you can to the bottom and you clicked i agree a lot of christians they don't want to read the bible They just clip to the end and say oh i agree i agree with all of it right i just oh i accept all of that don't want to read it don't want to spend time in it Don't want to engage it, but, Lord, I just accept all of it. And you assume if there's something in the Bible that you really need to know about, then someone, some nerd on Facebook, some nerd on Instagram is going to make a meme about it and is going to send it out there to the world so that you can get your theology off that meme, right? And in this illustration, I'm the nerd because I'm the pastor, and you just figure, oh, I don't really need to engage the Scripture, and if there's something I need to know, then the pastor is going to let me know. Some of you, you've tried to read the Bible before and you started out really well. Maybe it was a New Year's resolution, but you got stuck in some genealogy where Abba, uh, you know, Abba Mashazam, you know, begets Mashizel, or at least that's how you remember it. And Methuselah mixes up with Enoch. And you get to a place where you just think, okay, I'm fizzling out. Well, this year at Dwelling Place Church, we're going to change all that. This is gonna be our year to live biblically. This is gonna be our year to live biblically. We're gonna spend an entire year in the scriptures together. That's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna challenge everybody, whether you're a member here, regular tender or not, as I'm challenging people that are on my social media accounts, friends that I have that attend other churches, to be the year that we live biblically. Now, the Bible is an interesting book, it's a product of supernatural engineering. Okay. The Bible has 31,102 verses. It has 1,663 different commands, 613 in the Old Testament, 1,050 in the New Testament. It has 40 different authors, over 40 different authors, and it has 3,237 different Characters. Interestingly enough, there's 31 different guys in the Bible named Zacharias. If you make it to heaven one day and you meet some Old Testament-looking guy and you can't think of his name, just call him Zachariah. Chances are you got it, okay? There's a lot of Zacharias in Scripture. Yet in all of these commands, yet in all of these personalities, yet in all of these different characters, there's really only one story being told. It's all about the birth of a baby, a baby who would live sinlessly, a baby who would die on a cross and on the third day be resurrected every character every genealogy every command every promise points to him we could say it this way every story whispers his name your bible's about jesus my bible is about jesus nothing i don't think it's exaggerating for me to say to you all that this challenge to read the bible to live biblically can completely revolutionize some of your lives i don't think that's a stretch of the imagination or exaggeration at all because for some of you this year you're going to get your mind around the big picture of the bible for the first time because you've had little strands of revelation and truth about god's word and about the story of god but you've never been able to put your mind around the whole story it's going to start making sense Then all of a sudden you get to see the whole script and then you get this idea of a right framework to know how my story, how my life fits into his story. I will tell you also there's nothing better for your marriage. There's nothing better for your self-understanding. There's nothing better for your self-worth. There's nothing better for your self-purpose than knowing this story and knowing your place in it. Not knowing your story and asking God to come fix it. No, no. It's to know his story and being invited out of your little story into the grand story that's an eternal story that will not end when you die. But it's a forever story. See, I think one of the big misnomers of the Bible, it's ironic because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we have to because, again, people are so bored with God's Word, we have to package to sell more Bibles. You go to the Bible bookstore and everything is about a felt need. Are you depressed? Get this Bible. It's not enough just to say it's God's Word because we don't want God's Word. We want what God can do to help us. So we have to market even the Scripture about what needs we personally have, right? It's very difficult for us in the Western world to engage Scripture to say, I want to know God. I want to engage God. I want to be with Jesus. I want to become like Jesus, and I want to act like Jesus. In other words, I want to be with Jesus, I want to become like Jesus, and I want to do what Jesus did. I want to gain understanding of God in his word. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, me teaching you 10 steps to a great marriage is not nearly as beneficial as you grasping the 10,000 steps Jesus took towards securing your soul. That will help your marriage way more than any kind of steps of practical marriage. So if you're here today and you're new to Christianity, you're curious about it, Man, I can think of nothing more beneficial, nothing more beneficial for you than this. To follow with us, I invite all of you to really take this seriously, okay? You know, if someone misses the plot of a movie, they've wasted two hours of their life. If someone misses the plot of the Bible, they may have wasted an entire lifetime. Never fully grasping the story of God, the redemptive nature of our God. So we've got some resources for you. That's what I'm here to do. Remember, I told you I'm a pastor. That's what I'm here to do. The first one's called the JSP, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Parents, I want to tell you get this. Get this. The Jesus Storybook Bible. You say, Craig, why? Okay? If you read one story a week and you sit down with your family, it is honestly the best book to wrap your mind around the whole story of God. People say, well, that looks like a children's book. It is a children's book. But I had a guy ask me a couple weeks ago, hey, how can I get my mind around the whole scripture without reading all 66 books? I said, Jesus Storybook Bible. Why? Because Jesus Storybook Bible, pretty concise, not a very big book, but it's very clear and very practical and a great resource for getting your mind around the whole story of God. Secondly, we've developed a Bible reading plan, okay? This Bible reading plan I've done for the last few years, and uh, by far, my favorite Bible reading plan that we've ever done, or I've personally ever done, and um, the Bible reading plan is out there for you to pick up. You can also go onto our website. At the top of the page, you'll see Vision 2020. There's four directives that we're giving uh, Connect Group leaders and you individually to assess. I love this time of year. Christmas to New Year's is a time to really reflect and think, okay, God, what is my life? What is coming of my life? I love this plan because it's five days a week. Now, there's nobody that reads seven days a week, okay? If you do, let's shine your halo. You are an angel, okay? So you've got plenty of time to be able to catch up on weekends or whatever you have. My wife and I, we did this plan together this year. It's amazing looking at the whole story of Scripture. Now, it's chronological in order. So what that'll do is it'll take sparse psalms and proverbs and it'll put them into the historical books of where they belong all right so the bible begins to make sense okay i always tell believers please don't use a bible reading plan that starts in genesis and just reads right through the bible okay you will not make it to matthew until like october okay and that is you won't make it all right you'll die somewhere around february in exodus or leviticus or numbers okay so you've got to engage scripture on both sides so we have a Bible reading plan for each of you to engage. Now, there's. let me give you some motivation just right quick of why I think all of us should at least set out to do this Bible reading plan. Did you know it actually takes less than 10 minutes a day to read the whole Bible in a year? You say, Craig, that's not true. No, it is. The average American reads 225 words a minute, 200 to 250 words a minute. There's 775,000 words in the Bible. I did the math for you. That means 10 de- minutes per day you will read through the entire Scripture. Everybody has 10 minutes. Now you say, Craig, we're not reading seven days. Nope. That's why with our plan, it's about 13 and a half minutes. But 13 and a half minutes, five days a week, you will knock out the Bible in one single year. You say, well, I'm not a reader. Well, here's a third resource. There are bukoos of opportunities for you to get audio Bibles. You can do them through your phone, you can do them the Crossway, you can do them through UVersion, you can do them BibleStudyTools.com. There are free options galore, the Dwell app. You can, you, can, you can download Bible reading apps that can give you a French voice, give you a German dialect, give you a, give you a Hispanic flair. Whatever voice you want to hear the scripture read to you in, you can, right? There's so many resources to engage the scripture You say, Craig, why will this absolutely change my life? Let me tell you why. Because dwelling on the Bible is the single greatest thing you can do to invigorate your faith. Dwelling on Scripture. I've said it before, but better than reading apologetics, better than reading books on theology is to read the actual Scripture. Developing faith is, is less like building a house where you take one brick at a time and then you're finished. And developing faith is more like getting in shape. Like, getting in shape is your body steadily getting stronger over a lifetime. You don't just work out once and you're done. Woo! Resolution is done for 2020. No, you work out all year long, all lifelong, to develop those muscles. And one of the keys to staying in shape, they tell me, is eating right. Right? Eating right. I've heard that being in shape is only 20% exercise and 80% nutrition. That's why everybody who wants me to be healthy, they're always encouraging me to eat all these superfoods, right? High protein, omega 3s, knock down on the processed sugars, right? I had a friend who's always trying to tell his gym coach that the reason he eats so many fried foods is because the oil lubricates his system, and it makes the food go through. It's it's kind of like a two-cycle engine oil, right? So he thinks that the oil lubricates the the colon and the the small intestine, so he eats a lot of fried foods just to help things move a little faster, right? I don't think his gym instructor is buying that, okay? He certainly had not added that to the manual yet. But Scripture has been and always will be the superfood of faith. Now hear me, hear me clearly. Scripture and knowing Scripture does not equal faith, but it gives you the capacities for faith. Let me say it this way. You will be no more spiritual than you are scriptural. You're going to be no more spiritual than you are scriptural. That it gives the capacities for faith to develop in our own hearts. Now I don't make many guarantees for those of you who are regular tenders or members here. You know I don't as a pastor. But let me tell you something. I can guarantee you something. Next time this year, or next year this time, you will not be in the same spiritual place as you are right now if you take up the challenge to read through the Scripture in 2020 and live biblically. I can guarantee you, you'll be a different person. Totally look like a different person. You say, Craig, isn't it good enough just to come to church and hear the Bible? Well, listen, we preachers, we have what we call preacher bias, what that means is that if we're not careful, we don't preach from all of the books of the Bible. You want me to prove it to you? Look what Barna just released. This is amazing. Look at this, this deal here. This is all the books we preach from. Jonah, 110 out of these hundred thousands of people. And 3 John 22 and Ephesians 4.28. So in biblical language, we could say, Ephesians have I loved. 1 Chronicles have I hated. Very rarely you're going to hear a sermon come out of 1 Chronicles. Very rarely will you hear one come out of Ezekiel. Very rarely out of Numbers. That's why we do two series per year where we just look at Bible books, right? Did minor prophets this last year. To get people into the grand scope of Scripture. To understand the whole redemptive nature of God. Now, that's a whole really long introduction talking about the Bible without yet getting to the Bible. So let's get to the Bible, All right, Psalm 119. Today, that's what we're going to look at, Psalm 119. We're going to spend time on the greatest love poem that's ever been written. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses. Did you know it's longer than 31 other books of the Bible? There's 66, and one chapter is longer than 31 books. Psalm 119 is this amazing expression of praise when a community is committed to sound doctrine. Now, Psalm 119 is a love poem, but it's a love poem about the Bible itself. We don't know who the author of the poem is. Our best guess is Ezra, who wrote the book of Ezra. But we know that whoever it is, they are totally just enraptured by the Word of God. Psalm 119's author loves the Word of God. Now, if you're an artist, you're going to love Psalm 119 because they write this poem in Hebrew in a very creative way. Hebrew's alphabet has 22 letters. Guess how many stanzas are in Psalm 119? Twenty-two. How many verses in each stanza? Eight. What does the first letter of each of those verses in the stanza equal? The letter of the alphabet. So it starts with the first letter of the alphabet. It goes to the second letter of the alphabet. It goes to the third letter of the alphabet, the fourth. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of people who are committed to God's word. One theological tradition says this psalm was written by David to teach his son Solomon the alphabet. I don't know that I agree with that or believe that, but... I hope you see that it is very significant that the longest love poem in the Bible is not about marriage. The longest love poem in the Bible is not about creation. It's not about mountains. It's not about sunsets. It's not about children. The longest love poem in the Bible is about the Bible itself. You know what that should tell us? The greatest beauty in the world is not God's creation. The greatest beauty in the world is not His people. The greatest beauty in the world is His Word. It's His Word He has given us his word. Jewish people, they've used Psalm 119 as as a part of their New Year celebration, Rosh Hashanah. So I think it's very appropriate for us to open up our New Year with Psalm 119. Charles Spurgeon, the great C.H. Spurgeon, he said that every preacher should memorize the whole thing. Well, I haven't done that yet. Blaise Pascal, great philosopher, always quote, did. William Wilberforce stopped Western slavery, memorized all of Psalm 119. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip through. I'm not going to read all 176 verses, or that would be my whole message. I'm going to skip through what I think are the main points. Follow along with me in these verses. And then I'm going to give you four and a half reflections about why We should engage the scripture this year, the year of living biblically. Verse 9, notice what the text says. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? This is one I have memorized, by living or guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in winning the lottery. That's my translation, but nonetheless, in all riches. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then verse 42, shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. Why? Because I trust in your word. Verse 72 The law from your mouth, God, is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. The law of God is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 89 Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, your laws endure to this day. For all things serve you, verse 91. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You want a verse to memorize in college? By the way, college students, this is one you want to memorize. I have more understanding than every one of my professors. I understand, verse 100, more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. In other words, spiritual maturity doesn't have anything to do with how old you are. It has everything to do with how much of the word of God do you know and do you live That's it. How much of the word of God do you know and do you live? Are you obedient to? Verse 105, for your word is a lamp to my feet, watch this, and a light to my path. Verse 109, I hold my life in my hand continually. That just means I hold my life lightly. But I don't hold your law lightly. I hold your law like a drowning man holds a life raft. I don't forget your law. Verse 111, Your testimonies are my heritage forever. In other words, my inheritance. What I'm looking forward to forever is your testimonies, God. I'm going to live in your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 116, sustain me, O God, according to your promise, and I will live. Verse 133, keep steady. Watch that. I love that. Keep steady. I like that. My steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. And the last verse in the Psalm, Psalm 176, he said, I've gone astray like a lost sheep, Seek your servant, God, for I do not forget your commandments. Let me give you some reflections. Number one, the Bible is revelation from God. The Bible is revelation from God. Throughout the psalm, the author refers to Scripture as testimonies of God or statues of God or law of God or the precepts of God or the rules or the commandments or the word of God from God. Can I just tell us, nowhere in Scripture is Scripture talked about as enlightened human thoughts about God. Scripture is not enlightened human thoughts about our God. It's God's revelation to us. And that's one of the most important things you must learn about the Bible. You say, Craig, this is not a real popular message to preach in 21st century American Christianity. I realize that. And I realize in my own heart how much attack is taking place in our culture against the infallible truth of God's word. And when we think about God's word, our culture relegates that book to just being one collection of enlightened thoughts about God, but it's just one book. And other religions have other books. They have other things that kind of contribute to the whole idea and picture of God, and every religion has its own contribution. Most people, I told you, they they see religion much like the story of the blind men and the elephant parable. Remember I've told you before? They see religion like this. Three blind men fall into a pit. When they get to the bottom of the pit, they can't see, obviously. So the first one stands up, and he grabs the tusk of the elephant. He says, Woo, this is a spear. The second one stands up, grabs the leg of the elephant, says, No, no, this is a tree trunk. Third one stands up, grabs the tail. He said, oh, this is a broom. And what's the moral of the story? Only when they humbly listen to each other and they put all of their information together would they get a picture that it's a whole elephant. And our culture sees religion that way. If we'll listen to the Muslim and we'll listen to Buddha and we'll listen to the Buddhist and we put it all together, then we can get this whole picture of who God is. As humbly as I can say it, but as directly as I can say it, that's not what the writer of this psalm and that's not what Jesus believed about the Bible. Jesus believed about the Bible that what the authors of the Bible wrote, They spoke the very voice of God. That when the writers of Scripture transcribed the canon we call Scripture, it was God's voice speaking. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Look at Mark 12. Jesus, for example, quotes a passage from David, who David clearly wrote, and he doesn't say David said, he said God said. So Jesus takes what David said and said David didn't say it, he said God said it. What's he saying? Everything David said was what God said. That when we look at the scripture and the canon of scripture, it's God speaking to mankind. But Craig, how can I know something written by a fallible human can be the word of God? Well, theologians compare it to the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus was both human and divine. He was 100% God, 100% divine. That doesn't mean he was 50% God, 50% divine. It wasn't like he had a divine hand and a human hand, okay? He's 100% God, he's 100% divine. Uh, human. The human side of Jesus meant that Jesus was limited in his power. He didn't fly everywhere, right? I mean, he didn't. he, he, He walked around. There were ways where his knowledge was limited on some things. Okay, we'll talk about that more. But he was also a 100% divine, which meant that he was 100% free from error, free from sin. He was 100% man, 100% God. The same is true for the Word of God. It's 100% human, written by humans who are fallible, who can make mistakes, but it's also 100% divine, which means it's absolutely perfect and free from error. So when we say the Bible is infallible, please understand, we're talking about the original manuscripts, because sometimes you're going to hear Pastor Chad and I get up or somebody in growth phase and say, well, this is a bad translation in the NIV, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, did they just say the Bible's fallible? No, no, no. We're talking about infallibility means without error is with the original manuscripts. Now, when we translate to our language, of course, you're going to have meanings lost, meanings are going to change, connotation of a word may change. But when we say the Bible's infallible, it's 100% written by fallible human beings, but it's 100% di- divine and free from Now, it's popular today in our world to say this. Well, I believe in Jesus, but just not all the stuff written in the Bible. If you say that, you don't really believe in Jesus. You don't. Jesus saw himself as the explainer and fulfiller of Scripture, never its corrector. Jesus didn't correct the Scripture. He fulfilled the Scripture, and he explained the Scripture. He didn't change the Scripture he said, not a jot and tittle of this law will change. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but not this word. Now, listen. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said. He said, sooner heaven and earth pass away than one syllable of the Bible become untrue. Now, of course, you've got to learn how to interpret the Bible, don't you? To so know when the Bible is speaking metaphorically and which laws of the Old Testament don't apply to us anymore. We'll get into all of that. We've talked about all of that many many times but nonetheless you got to you got to see for now that that Jesus thought of the book that's there in your lap as perfect to say it's wrong would be like saying god is wrong the writer of the psalm said it this way Psalm 119 verse 89 forever your word is established in the heavens he didn't say forever your word is being edited and revised by 21st century americans Okay, it's not what he said. He said, forever your word is established. I don't matter. It doesn't matter what orientation people have. It doesn't matter how people perceive it. It's established firm in the heavens. It's forever established. In other words, guess what? The Bible is a word that comes down from above, not a consensus of wisdom that rises up from below. It's the word of God coming from God. Here's why I belabor this, Okay. You have to decide whether that's true or not. The most important question you'll ever ask yourself is, do you really believe the Bible truly is the inspired Word of God? That's the most important question. You have to believe or decide whether you believe the Bible was what Jesus and the apostles and the prophets believed it to be. And if it is, watch this, if it is, you have to accept all of it. You have to accept all of it as the Word of God and not pick pick up yourself and set yourself as the judge of what's right and wrong. The Bible's not like a salad bar that you get to create your own meal. No, no, no. You have to accept all of it as the word of God. If not, if on the other hand, you're in this room or you're streaming live and you think it's a collection of human ideas, then have at it. But what you got to do is then you need to sift it and you find what's most helpful. You say, Craig, but what if I don't really know? Well, then come this year and listen. Follow us on hashtag DPC Bible reading as we as a community engage the text together. Okay? Another way I could say this, the Bible is God's revelation. You ready? Let me give it to you this way. The Bible is not man's theology, but it's God's anthropology. Let me say that again. The Bible is not man's theology, understanding of God. That starts down here. It's God's study or communication of human development cultures societies so when we say the Bible's revelation from god it's not our wisdom that comes up to have a consensus it's god speaking to his people about who he is his divine revelation number two the bible is life-giving law it's life-giving law the word law in the psalmist uses over and over throughout the psalm 119 is in verse 72 this word law by the way you want to take notes it just means straight edge straight edge, like something you'd use to measure a piece of cloth or construct a building. Y'all, could you imagine what would happen if you didn't have a standard measurement of those things? Would our world end up in chaos? Like if everyone could redefine inch or pound. You know how much do you weigh? Well, 110 pounds in Georgia pounds. I don't know what your Kentucky pounds are, but our Georgia pounds, I'm 110 pounds, right? Right? Or imagine, you know, no officer, I was, I was only going 40 miles per hour. My miles are just three times longer than yours. Okay, well, some way that might be convenient, but most of the ways it's going to be really, really bad. Well, listen, God's law is the straight edge by which we measure all things in life. That which is good, that which is bad, that which is right, that which is wrong, now, many of us, we, of course, we don't like the idea of anybody dictating to us what's best for us. Our culture cherishes the idea that the one who makes the best decisions about right and wrong, for me, is what's deep inside my heart. Right? I make the decision what's right and what's wrong. But let me ask you a question. How do we know what is in your heart is right and good? How do we know that what you think is right and good. Because everyone in this room, in fact, I've probably never met an American that will not admit that everything in our hearts isn't good. So how do you know what's right and good and what's wrong and bad? Let me prove it to you. You ready? Two guys, two young men, late 20s, walking down the road. One of the men is a Viking in 800 AD. He's from Viking, Norway. The other one is a young professional in downtown Atlanta. And these two young men in their 20s are walking down the street. And as they're walking down the street, they have impulses. One of the impulses the guy has is to go back and kill that guy in the store who just insulted my honor. And the other is, I want to have sex with another man. Now the Viking culture would say, the first impulse is good. Go back and get your honor. But oh, you better shun the second one. That is wrong. Our culture in America would say the opposite. Shun the first one. Don't you do violence, but oh, yeah. If you want to sleep with another man, you sleep with another man. Why? Because that's the real you. You say, Craig, are you trying to put these two things on impulses as as, as being parallel? No, what I'm trying to get you to see is that what's in your heart is not always right. Can we have a, just another of historical humility... To sit down for a moment and say, in a 100 years from now, our kids and grandkids will say, I cannot believe what my grandfather believed. Now with the science we know, can you believe they believe such stupid stuff? Okay. So if we're always going to change, we've got to have a straight edge. We've got to have a straight edge by which to view every desire, every motivation, every action. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying the Bible is supracultural. That means it's beyond culture. It's beyond culture. And the Bible, can I say this? The Bible ought to contradict you and make you mad sometimes. I'm a pastor and it makes me mad. It makes me really, really mad. I don't like it. And I get up here and talk to you like I really do like it, but I really don't like it. And therefore I'm a hypocrite. Right? But there's many, many times where the Bible contradicts. Why? Because it's a word from God. Listen, if the Bible never contradicts you, you probably aren't reading a word from God. You're simply just projecting your preconceived idea about what is right or wrong and deifying that and calling that God. It's like this. If your God never disagrees with you, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping you. You're worshiping you. And in so many cases, we don't want a God. We want a deified version of ourself to worship and serve and a divine butler to make it all come true. Look at this, Psalm 119, verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. Let's talk about liberals for a minute. Bear with me. Liberals, they think progressive wisdom is where it's at. All right? Watch the news. It's better to be on the right side of history because we know wisdom is all about progression. What do conservatives do? conservatives tend to think that the wisdom of the past is best. Which one's better? It's a trick question. Is God a liberal or is God a conservative? Well, according to this verse, when you're shaped by the Word of God, you won't be a liberal or a conservative because you'll critique the past and you'll critique the future. So you can't find yourself on that spectrum of liberal or conservative. You're critiquing the past and you're critiquing the future based upon God's holy divine Word. Notice what he said. I have more understanding. I understand more than the aged. Psalm uh, verse 105, look what he said. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know what that means? That means the word gives you wisdom about things you can't see. It gives me direction. By the way, I wish it was a different translation, but the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path is not a spotlight that we spotlight deer with. Okay, I'm a deer hunter. In other words, it's not like a 45,000-lumen light. It's just enough light for one more step. Now, I want you, I know, I want you, and I want to, to read the Bible and have like the next mile and a half out in front of me. But that's not the way this thing works. It's every day, it's enough light for the next step. And then the next day, it's enough light for the next step. And I wake up tomorrow, and I don't have my monthly bread. I have my daily bread again, and it's enough light for the next step. And this is how God leads His people. He said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. C.S. Lewis said that the law of God was like being lost in the wilderness and your feet finally sudden, suddenly find the path. You ever done this before? ever been lost in the woods? I was much younger, got lost in the woods. My dad and I have gotten lost in the woods, trying to go into a deer stand in the middle of the pouring rain, right, when it's dark. And I don't know if you've ever gotten lost in the woods before, but this sense of panic starts to go. Everything starts looking the same. Trees start looking the same. Pathways start looking the same, and all of a sudden, while this panic co- continues to build, right? Then all of a sudden, you find the path again, light lights it up, and oh, yeah, that path is narrow, but boy, is it liberating. Oh, yeah, it's constricting when you look at the Word of God, but you get the direction that leads you through the wilderness of whatever you're facing. Can I tell you, high school students? Can I tell you, college students? You are, if you're not already in, about to go into the wilderness called dating. You're about to go into the wilderness called career selection. You're about to go into the wilderness called choice of jobs. What is it that God would have you to do? Now, if that's the case, you need the Word of God to speak to you clearly about what God would have for your life. You have to have the Word of God. I, you know, I speak to uh, speak to college students a lot, and uh, get a college guy comes to me, he's he's sleeping with his girlfriend. He comes. He comes and has the conversation with me. He says, "Hey, um, you know, would God punish me for this?" And originally, you know what my answer is going to be, right? Well, obviously, there's going to be there's going to be consequences for this sin. But I always just ask him to take a step back and just just think about what you just asked me. Will I get punished by God for sleeping with my girlfriend? And what I want to say is, why are you afraid of going sideways with the wrath of God, but not sideways with the wisdom of God? So listen, you're afraid of disobeying God, but you're not afraid to do a relationship outside of the one who knows relationships best. So why would you be afraid of God's wrath and not be afraid of going sideways with his wisdom? See how stupid that question is? Well, I get punished, I would think that the one who holds the keys to heaven and earth, he might know a little bit about relationships. And so when we say, oh, well, I get punished, a.k.a., I'm okay? With going against God's design, I just don't want to be punished for going against God's design. Makes no sense. He goes on and says, verse 133, keep steady my steps. Watch this, according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Can I tell us, whatever part of your life that's not anchored into God's word is going to be a shaky part. Yeah? Your life is a matrix of vocation and relationships. And whatever part of your life that is not anchored in the Bible is the part that the enemy attacks to bring you down. He'll start to tap. I don't know whatever it is. He'll tap whatever area it is. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's money for you. And eventually he finds the one and he brings the whole thing down. Give me an illustration. Jenga. Everybody loves some Jenga. What happens in Jenga? My kids love to watch the whole thing fall, right? Sometimes I just knock one out just to let them watch. The face, you know, amazing, right? We did a, a, a game with our leaders last summer. I had like five games planned. We did life-size Jenga. Two and a half hours later, we're still in the same game of life-size Jenga. This church takes Jenga for real, seriously. And what happens? You got to find, you just keep tapping until you find the one that's not, that's not, It's, you want the one that's not stuck, right? And here's what the enemy does. He just begins to tap until he finds the one that's not anchored in the Word of God. And when he does, your whole life comes down. Any part of your life that's not anchored in the Word of God will cause your fall. It will be ultimately the one block that the enemy of your soul keeps trying to tap. Finding where your life would fall through. Verse 123 said, Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. I love that. The psalmist says, Where do you turn to in bad health report? Where do you turn to when you have marriage problems? Where do you turn to when challenges? He says, Nothing shakes me, not even the powerful plotting against me. Where do your thoughts go to when you're in opposition? Where do your thoughts go to when you're in tragedy? Number three, the Bible is primarily the story of God's deeds, not ours. It's the record of His promise, not our duties. The Bible is the story of God's deeds, not our deeds. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, cause me to understand the way of your precepts that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. Wait, I thought the Bible was about my deeds. You ever heard somebody talk about the Bible like that? The Bible is just a book of rules. No, it isn't. The Bible is a book of what God's already done for you. That's what it is. He didn't say, I may meditate on my wonderful deeds now that I've accepted you, Jesus. He said, no, no, I'm going to meditate on your wonderful deeds. In other words, the book of the Bible is the book of his deeds. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. You know, when I was a young boy, I always thought the Bible was like a book of heroes to emulate, right? Man, after God's own heart, David, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to get thrown in the lion's den. Dare to be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When as I got a little bit older... Then I started beginning to think that the Bible was a book of rules to obey. 663, to be exact. I felt like it was a little bit like showbiz or Chuck E. Cheese, whichever one generation you are a part of. And it was like the whack-a-mole game. You know, you whack the moles, and the mole would come up, and I'd get that command down, and then five more that I disobeyed would pop up. And I'd hit that one, and this one would pop up. Ever, Ever felt the Bible's that way? And then when I got a little bit older, I took the Bible as practical advice, But I hope this year you see the Bible as not primarily any of those things... The Bible is a story about someone who came to rescue us because we had broken the rules and we had rejected the advice and were so messed up that we can't put it back together again. That the Bible and its story of love would be so captivating and so big that when you finally learn it, when you finally see it, the rest of your life starts to make sense and you gain the motivation to live for God again. You gain the motivation to see your career differently. You gain the motivation to see your marriage differently. I'll give you an analogy, an analogy not that I love, but an analogy that most people love. In every story, there's major characters and minor characters. Let's go to the 1970s, Star Wars 4. Who's the main character of Star Wars? Not a trick question. Luke Skywalker, okay? If I said Luke Skywalker, everybody here knows who that is. Anybody know who Biggs lighter is? Of course you don't, unless you're a nerd, Okay. Biggs Darklighter, you know who he was? He was the X Wing fighter who came in and shielded Luke so he could blow up the Death Star within like the first 10 seconds of the battle, okay? Now, how would you like to be that guy, all right? You live your whole life to show up on screen to get. Killed so that Luke, the main character, can kill the Death Star. There was other ones that actually come in. They were, they, they didn't have names. X-wing fighter number six, X-wing fighter number seven, X-wing fighter number eight. But their lives, even though they're minor characters, live a remarkably significant portion because they're tied, tied to the bigger story. Let me ask you a question: If your life were conceived as a movie, who do you think the main character would be? Oh, it's me. It's it's a story about me. What if today we gave you the opportunity to get out of your little story and to be thrown into another bigger story where you're no longer the major character but you're a minor character and that when your life ends, the chapters continue on. What if we gave you the opportunity to get out of your little book and into a bigger book? Why would I want to do that? Because... If not, your book will end when you die. But if you jump into his book, then you realize God may actually make you you rich so you can be generous to help the main character continue to get his job done. See, when I understand that my life is a minor character in the big story, then, then whatever lot come my way, whatever suffering, whatever challenge, I realize that, hey, it's only what? So that I can shine the spotlight on the bigger character. The message of the Bible is, Here are some some practical tools so you can fix your life. No, 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 it's fix your eyes on Jesus and then everything will stop or start to look different. Listen, you have to stop reading the Bible like it's all about you. And you gotta read the Bible like it's all about Jesus. This book is not a book of duties you need to do for God. It's the story of his love for you. It's the story of his love for you. Which by the way, can I just say real quick, that's why all the genealogies and those things are all in there. You want want me to prove it to you that I know we read the Bible for what it can do for us? Because we read it and we say, what's uh, that got to do with me? It doesn't have anything to do with you. It's setting up a man to be born. His name is Jesus. That's why I in there. Of course, those genealogies don't have anything to do with you because you're not the the character of the story. Jesus is the character of the story. And they're framing his birth. They're framing his life. This Bible is the universe's great love letter. My question is, have you read it that way? You know, I fell my wife miserably. Miserably. But I tell you, when I was dating her, I did a whole lot better job of pursuing her than I do as a a husband. I did. I was amazing, I thought. Not to toot my own horn, but I did some cool things. I had a lot of... We used to write love letters to each other major love letters. I mean, enough love letters to fill up Encyclopedia Britannica. For those of you who are under the age of 18, before Google, we had books, and we actually learned everything by having to open the Encyclopedia Britannica to the actual first letter, and then that's how we had to read things. We we had no Google. And so we would write these letters. Imagine if I wrote all these letters to her, and then let's say we're married, you know, 15 years later, and I go in, I find three boxes in our attic, And I open them up, and it's all the love letters that I wrote to her when we were dating, and none of them are opened. How would I feel? And I say, babe, did you not read these? And she said, well, I knew that that you loved me, so I didn't read them. How would I feel? Well, how does God feel when you know this is his love letter, and you just say, you know what? Hey, you know what? I know God loves me, but I've never read the book of Habakkuk. How does that make God feel? Oh, I don't need to read it. I already know he loves me. I just accept it. Boop, accept software license agreement. Why does he want me to read Habakkuk? Because it talks about how God's love comes to us in the midst of tragedy. And by the way, let me just help you out. One day you're going to meet Habakkuk in heaven. He's going to come to you and say, how would you like my book? you're going to say, I didn't read it. And you're going to be embarrassed and it's going to be awkward, so I'm trying to save you. Now listen, listen, I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but listen, listen. If we make it to heaven where we'll spend eternity, I don't want one person in this room to meet Jesus and have to look at him and know that you have not read maybe an entire book or an entire chunk of his love letter to your life. That would be a failure. His love letter, his engagement, his communication. Number four, the Bible has more value than life itself. The psalmist says this word has more valuable to him, or more valuable than pieces of gold and silver. Psalm time, he said, I, "I hold my life lightly, but I cling to your word like a life raft." I want to ask you a very pointed question, very clear: What level of importance does the Bible have in your life? What level of importance? Man, if you found out that some kind of predator was in your neighborhood and you let your kids go out and play with no supervision, what kind of dad would you be? If you knew there was a predator on the watch list in your neighborhood and you just let your kids go play, the Bible tells us there's an enemy who seeks around, prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He has one intent, to kill, destroy, and steal. And the only hope, your only hope, listen to me, Dad, is Scripture. And if you let your kids grow up never watching you read Scripture, they grow up thinking manly men don't read the Bible. I have a pastor friend contacted me. He's much older in life. He said, the number one regret I have, he said, I wish my kids would have seen me openly reading my Bible. He's a pastor, more in the home. That was it to engage the Scripture, to open the Bible. Listen, the only way you can confront a lie is to know the truth. The only way you can confront a lie. When Satan attacked Jesus, what did he do in the wilderness? He quoted Scripture. What will your kids come up with when Satan attacks them? I said, what will, not what if Satan attacks them. What will your kids come up with when Satan attacks them? What will they come up with? How will they communicate? And he will. He is. He will attack your kids. Jesus didn't try to outwit Satan or lean on his character. He quoted Scripture. You say, well, of course Jesus knew Scripture. He wrote it. No, the New Testament says that Jesus was born with no Scripture memorized. He had to learn it like the rest of us. In other words, Jesus went to Awanas too. Jesus went through growth phases. Okay? He had to learn it as well. He stuck around for extra credit afterwards and talked to Pastor Chad and Craig for three hours until 1 a.m. every Thursday evening too. Okay? He, he, was, he was an overachiever. Listen, y'all, I get it. Our family's busy. Our family's busy. But I don't have my kids in nearly the amount of extracurricular stuff I think the average American parent does. And if they don't grow up knowing everything about Taylor Swift and LeBron, but they can talk their way through First Timothy or Lamentations, I'll be a proud dad. Because let me tell you something will not help their marriage is what Taylor Swift has to say about their marriage. And let me tell you what will not help their life or career is knowing how many stats LeBron James has. But what will change their life and sustain their life is knowing God's holy word. To know his holy scripture. Y'all, it was by the word God created everything. It was by the word Jesus was raised from the dead. It was by the word he gave sight to the blind. It was by the word that in Revelation he would destroy the works of the enemy and make all things new. It is by the word that he will free you from addiction, piece back together the broken shards of your relationship, your marriage, to give you sight, to make you walk. It is by his word. His word is light. His word is life. His word is salvation. By his word he redeems, he reconciles, he restores, and he renews. When life cuts you, you got to believe the word of God. Believe God's word. But after all, the problem's not that we don't believe how valuable it is, right? The problem is we've never brought our practice in line with our beliefs. Let me prove it to you. If I offered to you $500,000 to never touch the Bible again, never hear it, read it, talk about it, or even think about it, would you accept that? if I gave you $500,000 for the rest of your life to never touch, think, or see Scripture again, most of you would say, no. You just identified that book as an asset over a half a million dollars. How could you just ignore it then? If that shows the place of value on that word, why are you not just devouring it? Okay, so maybe you're not a believer in here. And you say, maybe, well, Pastor Craig, I'm not even sure it is the Word of God. Okay, If I offered you $500,000 to never read, hear, or think about the Bible again, would you take it? Most of those people would say no, too, because even if there is a chance it's the Word of God, you wouldn't want to be cut off from it, not even for $500,000. So if you think the Bible has that much potential value, why aren't you devouring it to actually figure it out if it is the Word of God? If it is God's Word. So why not we let this year be the year that we change that? Last scripture, Verse 176, he said, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. I love this. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. I don't know about y'all, but I see a contradiction there. Do you not? I've gone astray like a lost sheep, but I don't forget your commandments. And you read through Psalm 119, and you get that over and over. Throughout this Psalm, God, I hate double mindedness, but I'm double minded. I love your word, but I love other stuff more. I want to read your Bible. But another session of Grey's Anatomy really is calling me to the couch right now. I don't know. Grey's Anatomy. I don't know what your choice is. Which is it? Does he love it? Does he not? Here's the answer. He wants to love it, but he knows his heart to be divided. So he resolves to love it and asks God to bring his heart in line. And that's the secret of Christianity. I want to do this Bible reading plan, but my heart's divided. So Lord, I'm just going to ask you to bring my heart in alignment with this desire. Christian growth, church, begins by confessing to God what we are not and then asking God to make us into what we know we should be and what Jesus died so we could be. That's what Christianity is. And for most of us, including me, the word doesn't have nearly the place of prominence in our hearts that it should. So why don't we resolve this year to be the year where we together hate double-mindedness, we're going to ask God to change our hearts so the word of God becomes our prize and we go into 2021 Knowing our lives are living biblically. Knowing our lives are committed to the scriptures. To get the resources. Now, listen, I'm not asking you to commit to anything, I'm asking you to ask God. Because the fifth and final one is you need the Holy Spirit's help. To understand scripture, you need the Holy Spirit's help. Charles Spurgeon said visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible a resolution, that this would not be a year of factual transfer, but it would be transformation. So here's what I've got for you. um, Whoever's playing keys, Maddie, would you come? Look at this. This is amazing to me, church, and I'm almost done. A recent study was was pulled by 40,000 Americans. This was done by the Center for Bible Engagement. This is going to be jaw-dropping. 40,000. Don't steal my thunder yet. 40,000 people from 8 to 80 years old. The Center for Bible Engagement pulled these people and they just wanted to see what would happen when people engage Scripture. What would happen? They discovered something they weren't looking for. It was a profound discovery and it became the whole issue of of their publication. Here's what they learned. When we're in Scripture one time a week, that could be... um, Preacher getting up on Sunday and saying, open your Bible. It had negligible effect on the person's life. If you were in the scripture two times a week, negligible effect on the person's life. Three times a week, you got a blip on the map. But it was just a heartbeat. 40,000 people polled. But here's what was astounding. When people were in the word of God four times a week, it spiked off the chart. Now, now listen, what spiked off the chart? You would have thought it would be one, two, three, four, five, gradual. No, no. It was one, two, three, four. Say, so, Craig, how did it affect their lives? Let me give you some. You're in the scripture four times a week, you're feeling lonely, drops 30%. You're in the scripture four times a week, your anger issues drop by 32%. Bitterness in relationships, marriage, friendships, drops 40%. People are in the scripture four times a week. Alcoholism dropped 57%. People that are in the scriptures four times a week, the number one thing I get when I talk to people, I feel spiritually stagnant. It drops 60%. You want to know a really good stat? Viewing pornography, when you're in the scripture four times a week, drops 61%. On the flip side... When you actually engage the Scripture, guess what? Sharing your faith jumps 200%. When you're in it four times a week because you're confident in God's Word, you discipling others jumps 230% four times a week. So here's what I'm going to ask you today. Between now and the new year, pick up this. Out in the lobby today. Online, you'll see Vision 2020. I have multiple documents that we put together. I put together over the last few weeks that I think are helpful. Click on the link. You'll find a generosity reflection where you can look at your own life. You can look at a spending pie, a pie chart that we put. I give you exercises to look as a, a home, a family, how God would lead you in 2020. Maybe it's your own discipleship plan. You can ask questions about your discipleship. How can you make efforts to grow in Christ likeness in this year? How can... God call you as a part of your connect group to grow in community commitments. Those are all on there, okay? Very self-explanatory. We put these together to help you, to serve you as the body of Christ, as this local congregation, to make 2020 our best year, if it's our best year, what? Our best year spiritually. The way I do it, at church, as, a, as the band comes, I get a new Bible each year. So my my Thompson Chain reference is breaking. You say, Craig, why do you do this? Every year, I get a new Bible because when I read through this Bible, I write all over this. This It's not my preaching Bible. You've never seen me preach from this or teach from this. And what I've learned is that if I read this same Bible again next year, I won't let the Holy Spirit speak to me, fresh revelation. I'll just look in the margins and see what God spoke to me last year. My mind will immediately jump to what I wrote last year. So every year, January, I get a new Bible. I know they're expensive. You get a good one. I get a new Bible. You say, Craig, is it cool to do it on iPad? Listen, I'm all for that, but we don't put our reading plan on the virtual reality like that because maybe call me old school. But uh, there is just something really, really important about touching the scriptures with your hands. It's very proven. And also what it does is it creates an expectancy because if you'll bring your Bible to church and you touch it, when pastor preaches and God speaks to you then what happens you'll go home and you'll open it and you'll have the same expectation for God to speak to you but if you don't bring your Bible to church and you see it off a screen when you get home and you touch your Bible that's different than the experience you just had when God spoke to you so it's even statistically proven that if you engage the scripture create a working relationship with the scriptures God will absolutely transform your life He will transform your life 2020 year of living biblically Oh, Craig, are we going to beat each other up? We fall off the bandwagon? Oh, my God, are you serious? No. Jump right back on. Jump right back on. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it takes you a year and a half or three and a half to get through that one-year plan. Jump back on. And guys, it's not legalistic. This is about creating space for you to encounter the author of the Word of God. The purpose of Bible reading is not for you to understand it all. It's for you to create space for its author to encounter you and to change you, to transform you. So Lord, let 2020 not be a year of factual transfer. Let 2020 be a year of transformation. Let it be a year where as we engage your word, you transform our lives, transform our hearts, change us, make us look more like you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.